Welcome to Magic is Real. I'm Shannon Torrance. I'm your host. I'm a psychic medium. I am a human being. And I'm very, very honored today to have with me David Bennett. I'm going to read you a little bit of his bio. He is a three-time spiritually transformative experience, or that's not quite the term, but one is a near-death experience. The others are more out of body, I think you would describe them as. Um, and he is an author. He is a speaker. He is an energetic healer. <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, he also is a woodworker, which is an interesting fact about you. I was just watching the National Geographic Channel series, The Story of God with Morgan Freeman, that you were on. Love that show. Love how it's produced. And it's just a beautiful episode on which you discussed your near-death experience and the nature of our souls. And uh, what I want to do is make sure to mention your books. You have a best-selling book about your experiences called Voyage of Purpose. And uh, there's, and then your second book, A Voice as Old as Time, is about using contemplation for spiritual transformation. You have been heavily involved with the NDE community, IANS, which is the International Association for Near-Death Studies. You've just done so many things, and I appreciate you joining me today after having spoke about your experiences for so many years. You're still doing it, and that means the world to me. So welcome, Shannon. officially. <laughs> Shannon, thank you so much for that amazing uh, interview or amazing uh, introduction. I'm you know, blown away. So. Well, you it's it's on your a lot of it's on your website, but I I'm very uh, impressed with your resume, but not just as a as a spiritual person, as an actual human. So I'd love to hear if you don't mind sharing whatever you're comfortable sharing about your background before any of this happened. What uh, it could be your childhood, what your spiritual beliefs may have been previous to this, and what your life looked like. Yeah, early on in life, I um, I was tossed. <laughs> I like to say tossed from one family to the next. Um, my mom was a single mom. Um, she did her best, but um, she, you know, it wasn't really popular back in those days to be a single mom. So she tried to place me with families. It wasn't through a foster care or anything like that, but she kind of did it on her own. I, I used to say she farmed me out for five bucks a week, you know, <laughs> and um, and so um, I, I, I was kind of put from one family to the next to the next because unfortunately she wasn't very good at vetting the families and so you know there was a lot of neglect some abuse uh, things like that and so I really had grew up very um, self-sufficient because I didn't really feel anybody was looking out for me so I was a, a, a self-sufficient but but that but along with that comes being very self-involved and so I was a pretty radical young young man. And my philosophy was very brutal. It was, uh, you cut your swath through life. And if you think about that, it's very uh, one-sided. It's very one-sided that I'm going to go where I'm going to go. And I don't care who gets in my way because I'm going to just get there one way or another, you know? And so it was a brutal philosophy. And, um, and, but it served me well. It served me well in a lot of ways because I was able to succeed. I was able to succeed even, you know, even with that kind of, uh, you know, just self-centered, you know, just individual me against the world kind of philosophy. But that was the kind of the early years. But then my mom kind of came back into my life uh, when I was 14. 
And so she moved us out to Arizona and we lived uh, just outside Sedona. And it was a beautiful place to grow up in, in your teens. Oh my gosh, you know, the canyons and the tromp those hills and everything. Well, most of my friends, because I was a, a New York kid, okay, used to street fighting and all of that. I was I was pretty tough uh, individual. And um, and suddenly I, I'm out with, you know, out in the in the West, you know, um, totally out of my element. But I didn't get along too well because I was a long-haired hippie type kid, you know. But I wasn't the type of hippies that were out there at the time. They were very pacifist, and I was not. And um, and so the cowboys thought I was, and so we would get into a few dust-ups here and there. Um, but so I really fell in with the Native American kids because, I don't know, we kind of saw eye to eye. We both saw, you know, like. You could identify. Kind of yeah, we could identify, with, you know, people were trying to persecute and mm -hmm. we weren't putting up with it, you know, that type of thing. So, but their grandmothers saw a lot of the dysfunction in my life. And so they kind of sat me down a couple of times and they tried to share some of their, you might say philosophy, their wisdom, native wisdom. And uh, they taught me how to, um, the, the term a lot of people use nowadays is vision quest, but it was, it was more about finding your sacred space. And so I really believe that they, they saved my life because I was on a really downward spiral. And they, uh, they showed me how to, you know, in their way, is a, a way of meditation and, and uh, prayer, you know. And I was successful after many attempts. And I met father, uh, Grandfather Mountain. And, um, and he kind of grounded me. He brought me back to back to who I really was. And so that allowed me to kind of get back on track, back into life, focus. Once I left school, get a job, all that good thing. So, so that was, um, and, and, I, and again, it served me well in that I was still very self-involved. You don't give that, you just don't drop that kind of thing. Once you've, once you've grown up with it, it's hard to just let go of that. But I, uh, I kind of lived that way for quite a while. And I've, and it, like I said, it served me well. I became the chief engineer of a research vessel. We did underwater exploration. It was my dream job. I was able to accomplish that, you know. And, uh, but I, you know, I went through the service. I did a lot of things to help, help, you know, kind of set a course. And, uh, but yeah, so I, I really ended up in a really good place. But you kind of, you know, as as spiritual as those grandmothers were, you, you have to live your life. And so, you know, you kind of, you have to make, you have to make a living, you have to get a job, you have to, you know, forge out some sort of career or something. Because that's what society teaches us as males, you know, this is our, this is our role. And so I was trying to fit in, and I was doing that. And, but I, I landed my dream job. So I was really quite happy with where I was in life. Um, I had forged my way. I had cut my swath through life, you know. Yeah. And it's so typical. It's so common for children who are neglected or abused to become hyper self-sufficient. You learn that you can't trust anybody and it's not safe to trust. And therefore you become 
it's self-reliant to a fault, yeah. um, which is a protective mechanism. So it makes so much psychological sense that that's where you found yourself. Oh, yeah. Well, you don't really believe anybody's out there looking out for you and that you have to, you know, you're the only one that's going to going to take care of you. So yeah, and then and and then so my first marriage was very dysfunctional as well, because we didn't know we didn't yeah. know how to have a relationship. And, um, you know, and, and we, we tried, I mean, we put our best effort into it and we tried, but it, eventually it, it fell apart, especially because after the near-death experience, there's so much change that happens in your life because suddenly you've been thrust into this otherworldly element. Um, you get to see who you really are in the near-death experience. I had a, a profound life review. And so when you come back, and I tried to share my experience, and um, but it wasn't I wasn't in the right place to really share it at the time because um, doing underwater exploration and stuff like that in the '80s was very very dangerous, and um, and we put each other's lives in each other's hands every day. So death was kind of a taboo subject. So to have drowned and and be you know miraculously resuscitated and everything was something that I didn't feel comfortable with talking to with my mates. So I tried to cover it up and I tried to even share it with my first wife, but it scared her. And so I didn't feel like I could talk to anybody for over 11 years. And so I self-isolated, but I took some of the elements of my near-death experience because it's so profound and it's so personal, these experiences, that, um, but it also was very scary because I was an engineer. I saw things in black and white and the near-death experience, you know, suddenly thrust me into this, uh, you know, this world of color and, and, and illusion and reality, hyper-reality and all of these things that um, were just foreign to me. And, and I started seeing auras and I started receiving information and I didn't know what, you know, what all this was. And it, it kind of, it rocked my boat. It really rocked my boat. Uh, no pun intended, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, it, yeah, it sounds like it was like the Wizard of Oz where everything goes from black and white to technicolor as soon yeah. as she lands in Oz. And um, previously, and I, of course, we're going to discuss that now, Your what happened with your in your near-death experience. But did you have any religious faith before or no, I know, I'm, no sorry, I didn't mean that. Um, not that this uh, is a religious experience. It's a spiritual experience. But mm -hmm. did you have any kind of religion or spirituality in your life? Or were you an atheist or an agnostic? My mom was an atheist, so she never really tried to introduce me to anything. But some of the families that I was, you know, in had yeah. different belief systems. And I won't go into that uh, in any detail, but uh, they I was thrust into different religions. And I didn't see where it really benefited the families that I was in. So I didn't adopt any of it. Right. So I was um, not so much atheist, maybe agnostic. You know, I just didn't, I hadn't adopted anything. Um, I was just trying to live my life. Yeah. So let's talk about the near-death experience. Yeah, it was while I was the chief engineer of the research vessel Aloha. It was in 83. So it was quite a while ago. I've had a lot of time to integrate. And... Uh, we were coming back from a, a job where we were evaluating a remote operated vehicle, ROV, and the design engineer was on board, and we were trying to beat a storm, and this is on the California coast, um, and 
it was a it was the Santa Barbara Harbor, and the harbor master wouldn't let us in because there were 25 30 footers breaking at the breakwater and so we the ship stayed uh two miles off the coast on, on station where it was just there it was just swells you know we didn't have we didn't have breakers or anything like that out that far so while we were the but this design engineer of the rov needed to get into lax so the captain was going to put the Zodiac, which is a small rubber boat, basically, and, and you know, shuttle him into the harbor. And we didn't have a full crew on board because we were just evaluating this, uh, this sub. So the captain, the one mate we had could handle the, the Zodiac, but he wanted somebody on in the boat that knew the harbor because it was rough. It was rough seas. So... He asked me to go along. Normally, I don't, I don't, this is not something that the chief engineer of a ship is going to do, but, but because I was the only, I was third officer and I, I knew the harbor. So I got in the boat. Uh, we all did. And, and a number of the sub crew too. So there were, there were five of us in there all together. And uh, we started headed again and we didn't know it, but we got blown a mile south of the harbor entrance. We totally lost orientation of the harbor buoy and everything because, you know, we would go up on top of a swell, try to get a bearing and then go down the trough and up to the next swell. And um, it was it was it wasn't very long that we kind of lost the orientation. So I, the mate and I talked and we said, let's just do a beach landing. We'll get this guy in so he can make his flight and all that sort of stuff. You know, we'll get these guys into the beach somehow, some way. We didn't realize that a mile south of the harbor is a great surf area, <laughs> and it's uh, and and there's a there's a ground swell that comes up and it creates these great rollers. Well, we drove right off a 25, 30 footer, and we we actually caught air, and um, and when we came down, I yelled to the mate to turn us about and get back out to sea because we're a lot safer there than in this breaker zone. And just then, the next one was right above us, came down, and it it. Folded the zodiac in half. I like to say like a peanut butter sandwich, you know, just folded it in half. I was in the bow, so it catapulted me, pushed me right into the sea, and I was tumbled and tossed like a rag doll. I mean, it was the most violent violence I'd ever experienced in my life. I mean, I totally lost orientation. And I'm trained as a commercial diver, so I, I didn't freak out because I spent thousands of hours in the in the ocean. And this had pushed me way down. And um, so I was waiting. This one night we'd actually put on life vests. <laughs> it was the one thing. Went down to the bosun's locker, and these things were old. Shannon, when I say old, I mean like World War II vintage, um, the orange puffy pillow yeah. type of life vest. We never wore life vests. You know, we we lived our life at sea, but we never wore life vests. And so, um, <laughs> so we put these things on. You know, beat the dirt off them and put them on. And so I was really glad after that wave it pushed me down so deep because i could tell we were i was down deep because you know as you go down your ears you have to equalize that pressure and so i had to equalize a couple of times so i knew i was down deep and um and i was just waiting for may west you know this old style of uh, life fest i was waiting for it to bring me up and it just didn't <laughs> and i drowned but so Starting of the near-death experience. Sorry, that was a long explanation to get there. I find but, it fascinating, as fascinating as anything else. But I found myself in absolute darkness. 
Now, I had just come from a raging sea, which is incredibly loud. And I was tumbled and tossed, and now it's calm, it's peaceful. And so I was curious. And <clears throat> in the process of, of drowning, I, I, knew I, was, I knew I was reaching the end because in diver training, we go through oxygen deprivation training. So we under recognize the symptoms. And so anyway, I, was, I found myself in a place way beyond what I was trained. And so I was curious because I just died this violent death. And I find myself in this absolute peace, this absolute calm, but it was absolute darkness. And yet it felt like it included everything. It's an incredible, they call it the void in, in research, in NDE research, but it's, it's, it's palpable. It's, it's incredibly vast within this absolute nothing. So it's, it's kind, of a, kind of hard for us to explain. We don't have the words to describe it accurately, but I felt comfortable. Now, many people that go into the void are actually, it's very, it can be very frightening if you just suddenly find yourself there. But I had, again, I died this violent death, so I found it very calming. And then I saw a light, and I felt like I was moving toward the light, or it was coming toward me. I'm, I, to this day, I still don't know. But it was, it was quite amazing, because as I got closer and closer to that light, I saw it was millions and millions of fragments of light. That's how I describe it. And they were of, like, one mind. If you've ever seen a school of uh, like sardines or bait fish when they're swimming in a school and suddenly they all move in one direction and move in another direction, you know, that sort of thing. And you see the, the different colors off of their scales and that sort of thing. Well, that's what these fragments look like. They were multicolored and they were moving like one mind. And it was just, you know, I was in gaga awe of what I was experiencing. And I kept getting closer and closer and closer. And as I got closer, I started feeling these waves of love that were just like embracing me in this warm embrace. It was almost like someone had just wrapped this warm uh, blanket around me of just pure love. And I'd never experienced that kind of love in my life. I, like I said, I had a pretty dysfunctional childhood. So I was just soaking it up. And... Uh, <laughs> And as I got closer, three fragments broke away and they and they came toward me and they greeted me. And the and it's not so much a language or anything like that. It was just we knew what each other were trying to communicate. We knew the communication. We knew exactly and it was crystal clear. And they were welcoming me home. And I, I Shannon, I can honestly say, I still, when I think about it, it's still is emotional for me to think of that of that homecoming and eventually a dozen of these light beings because i realized um you know as in this in this journey to the light i i was examining myself and i realized that i was becoming a fragment of light and and so i recognized them i recognized them as a family and i call them to this day i call them my soul family because they knew me. They knew me better than I knew myself at that point. And then we moved into the light, into a, a greater spherical kind of area within the light. And we started to 
relive my life. And we relived it not only from my experience or from my perspective, but it was like my consciousness fragmented into these multiple streams of consciousness. And I got to experience it from everyone I'd ever interacted with. I got to see it through their perspective. And again, I was in quite awe over this, but it was also incredibly humbling because my soul family were experiencing it with me the same way. So they were getting to see this rich life that I'd lived. But I brought, you know, when we die, we kind of bring a little bit of ourselves with us. And I, I brought some, I was ashamed that they had to see some of the things that I had done, being the brash young man that I was. And, um, but they didn't. They just loved me. They supported me. And, and that gave me the strength that I needed to kind of go through this life review and to, to relive my life. Well, eventually, I reached a point where I went past the point where I drowned. So everything in the life review was crystal clear. And, and the ripples of every interaction, all of that was crystal clear. But then when I got past the point of my death, and I didn't realize it at the time what was happening, but I started looking into my future life. And it was like looking down a corridor where things in the center were very clear, but there was additional stuff on the periphery. And I've come to know now, after many years, that, um, that the, the corridor is kind of like our, our life path, but the periphery is our free will because we can go a little bit this way, but we'll eventually be nudged back to the center. And we could go a little bit that way and we'll be nudged back into the center. And so it allows us to really experience life. And so I got to see segments of my future. And like I said, I didn't quite realize what it was at the time. In fact, it was a little disorienting, but my soul family just, you know, they just loved me. They supported me. They helped me get through it. And then we reached a certain point where the light, okay, this infinite light of millions of fragments spoke in unison, and I perceived this to be God, and it said, this is not your time. How rude. Yeah, you must return. And I said, no way. Mm -mm. I'm not going back. I've got a family that loves me I've uh, that I didn't even know. I... And the love, I've never experienced love like this. And I know that that body is broken. I know that body is just, excuse the crudeness, but it just felt like that body was just cold meat. I didn't, and I had no desire to go back to that body because everything was rich and alive here. And then the light spoke one more time. It said, you must return. You have a purpose. It did it so lovingly almost like a, a parental love. You have a purpose. And that word purpose just resonated through my being. And when we're beyond this life, we have the ability to have this expansive consciousness. I like to say <laughs> that uh, it's like all the souls that ever were and all the souls that ever will be. And that, that expansive consciousness in that state I was able to understand the word, that purpose. 
And it was so simple and it was so efficient that I just, uh, I just, you know, I immediately went to acceptance. And the minute my consciousness went to acceptance, I found myself outside my body. And the three soul family members that first greeted me were with me. And we were observing my body. It was still in that breaker zone. It had gotten caught in that cyclical area where the breakers are. And I was still, you know, my body was still being tossed around. And so I don't know how much time had gone by. To me, it felt like I just lived, you know, multiple lifetimes. But, um, but I was there watching my body. And I was just in awe of, you know, like, how is the enormity of me in this expansive light body going to fit in there? And just as I was kind of pondering that, the bow line of the zodiac. Now, the zodiac, when it when it folded up, it it most of the the pontoons with the air in this, you know, because it's a rubber craft, um, had lost most of its air. But one of them must have maintained a little bit of air in one of the pontoons. So, the bow line had wrapped itself around this arm and the the bitter end of the bow line was tapping my lifeless chest and i was just watching this it, and um and then another set of waves hit and it popped that zodiac up and when it did it pulled my arm up and pulled me up to the surface where i got tangled in with all of the uh, with all of the lines and and things like that and and part of the wreckage and so I was, it dislocated my shoulder, but I didn't feel a thing. I just observed, I just watched this happen. I just kind of rose up with my body and I was observing this. And, and uh, more waves hit us. And when it did it, it pounded me up against the wreckage. And some of that salt water came out. And just as, as that salt water was pushed out of my lungs, my soul family pushed me back into my body. And I would, there I am, <laughs> still a mile offshore. The storm is raging. I, I could hear my mates. These are the heroes of this whole story was the mates that were with me in that, in that boat and during that wreckage were on station. They were looking for me. And I could I couldn't shout back to them because when you're expelling salt water, your your throat is just pretty raw. So all I could do is squeak and squawk. But they eventually they found me. We all huddled around what was left of the zodiac, and we kind of I hung on with one arm, and I kept feeling I couldn't stay on the surface. I felt like I was sinking. All I just kept sinking, and I kicked off my um, I had brand new red wing boots, work boots. I kicked those off, and. Um, it didn't do any good. I was still sinking, still sinking. But when you come back from one of these experiences, you feel like you're half here and half there. And there's, and you still feel connected to that expansive knowing, that consciousness that's more than what we have available to us here. And I knew there was something wrong with this life vest I was wearing. And so I unbuckled it, which is something you really shouldn't be doing, but I unbuckled it because I knew there was something wrong. And when I opened it up, I could tell that the fiber 
the, the, the canvas had dry rotted. And so the salt water had saturated the fiber lining. It was actually what was keeping me from staying on the surface. So I, I, you know, took, took the life vest off and just, and it just disappeared. And I was like, okay. So, and then I could yeah. hang on to the Zodiac and we were able to, to, you know, swim in. So it was a rough night. Um, <laughs> to say the least. But, you know, like I said, you feel like you're half here, half there. And that feeling stuck with me for like three days. And I started, and it really freaked me out because I started seeing auras. I didn't know what they were at the time. I called them life force energy because, you know, I'm an yeah. en engineer. I didn't have a name for them. I, you know, this is back in 83. So, and I'd spent a lot of time out at sea. So I really wasn't in tune with popular culture or any NDE research, which had started back in the mid seventies. Um, so I was, I didn't know anything about that. And I didn't know anything about, you know, this new paradigm, this new worldview that I was suddenly thrust into and have words for it. I don't know how to describe it. And, um, And then I started receiving information and it really freaked me out. And Shannon, to be honest, I wanted my whole life back. It was like, what is going on? This is, you know, just like Dorothy and Oz, I was like, where the heck am I? And I want to go home. <laughs> Quick question. Did you tell other people? Did you tell your wife about what happened? I told my wife happened? at the time. That actually, that night I told my wife when, because I was, I was in, I was in hypothermic shock. Um, but, um, there's a lot of things that happened on the way home. But anyway, when I did get home, I, I was outside the door. I knocked on the door because I didn't want to, I thought my wife would kill me if I walked in because my pockets, the only thing left on me was my, my shorts, socks. I, I had already kicked off my boots. I was barefoot. Shirt had gotten torn away. The only thing I had on were my shorts and the pockets were full of sand. The sea had just, and my hair was full of sand. My ears were full of sand, my eyes, everything, nose, everything was just full of sand. And I thought, God, if I go in the house like this, she's going to kill me. And, you know, because I'm in, again, in shock. I'm yeah. in hypothermic shock. And now she had some nursing training. So she tried to put me when she, she came to the door and I was unaware at the time that she had been, she woke up suddenly just before I came home and she had a dream where I died. Wow. So when I show up at the door and they're not expecting us in until the next day and suddenly I'm there at the door, she was freaked out. And then when she, the minute she opened the door and she went to grab me to yank me in, like, what are you doing? Cause I started stripping right there and this was in one of those apartment complexes where all the doors face a central courtyard you know yeah. and i'm and i'm taking my clothes off outside the door and she's like what are you doing you know she tries to grab me and break pull me in but the minute she touched me she could feel i was ice cold i was just you know i was a walking the walking dead basically and um and so she tried to put me in a warm bath and i swore to god she was trying to scald me to death but it was just <laughs> but anyway so I tried to tell her while she was tending to me, I tried to tell her, you know, hon, I think I died. 
and she freaked out because I didn't know she'd had that dream. Wow. And so she freaked out and um, she thought I was, um, she thought I was, you know, in shock and, and everything. And so she was trying to bring me back to reality and um, it just didn't go well. So I just thought, well, I really can't share this because she's really freaked out about this. So I'm not going to share this. And I didn't feel like I could share it with my mates. Like I said, you know, yeah. that was, death was a taboo subject. So yeah, we just didn't go there. We just didn't go there. And I didn't share it with anybody for 11 years. I can't but, believe you kept that to yourself. Well, I, but it, like I said, it kind of scared me. Yeah. Talking to God, soul families, light, all this kind of stuff, this otherworldly stuff. But the thing that was really real to me was the love and the life review. And so in the life review, you really get to see who you are. And so in your mid-20s, you really don't have a clue. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> or at least I didn't. I didn't and, uh, <laughs> and so suddenly I knew who I was. And I could, and I, I called it acceptance. I could suddenly accept this is who I am. I definitely need, I have a lot of work I need to do on myself, but this is who I am and I can do better. And then tolerance. Like I said, I was very self-involved and self-reliant. And I didn't have tolerance for other people. But suddenly I could be tolerant for other people because I got to see in that life review and our interactions, we're all going to cross paths. And many times I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to subscribe to your point of view. I'm not going to, you know, your choices in life are not something that I would honor. So, but I can be tolerant that those are your choices. That's your life. And that you're going to, you know, you can... You can live your life and I can be tolerant of you as long as you're tolerant of me. And so acceptance and tolerance were, you know, kind of new, new concepts. And then the third thing that really, really, it took a little while to get wrap my head around it, but was truth that um, within each and every one of us, we hold uh, a personal truth, a truth that when we come across it, our, our hearts, our minds just resonate and we feel that expansiveness and that's personal truth. And so I kind of took that, that kind of became my mantra during that 11 years um, until I had another experience. But during that 11 years, you know, acceptance, tolerance, and truth, and the rest of it, talking to God, arguing with God, soul, family, light, love. I did go on an expedition where I was trying to research everything that had love in it. <laughs> and our library here at the house, it, it has a lot of titles that, you know, talk about love. Because I was trying to understand what was that love? You know, how do you find it here? And, um, and so there were a lot of journeys that kind of happened, but I just did it quietly. Because, you know, my mates, they all... Right after it happened, they were going, Dave, we were looking for you a good 15, 18 minutes. I know you can't hold your breath that long. What happened? What, were, what was going on? You know, And I would just, I would cover it up. I would say things like, well, Neptune spit me back, you know, stuff like that. And I didn't, I didn't elaborate. I just kind of, I hid things. And when I would suddenly get these knowings, I, I didn't know what to call them. They were, at the time, I thought of them as kind of like downloads. Suddenly I, I would know things things that I hadn't studied in school, things I hadn't lived. So I didn't know where it came from, but I suddenly had these knowings. And um, 
And so as an engineer, I would test them. You know, how reliable are these? Are these something that I can, you know, rely on? Is it veridical? And through that course of 11 years of receiving downloads and living with my acceptance, tolerance, and truth, I began to really rely on it. <laughs> no, but yeah, I'd love to know what kind, what, for example, what kinds of downloads you were receiving. It was interesting because, because my life changed after that. Um, another common thing that happens to a lot of experiencers is, and not just near-death experiences, people who have any kind of profound spiritual experience, you go through this integration process. And, and one thing that really happens to a lot of us is this call, this need to be of service. And so I eventually quit my life at sea because I didn't feel like being 500 miles offshore all the time was really, I, I didn't feel like I was utilizing everything I had to be, be of service. And so I started working um, in healthcare. Uh, and uh, it wasn't very long. I got involved with biomed and eventually uh, moved back to central New York and became um, the chief engineer of the, of the dialysis programs. And so <laughs> a lot of people ask me, how did you go from an engineer on a ship to a, you know, the, in, in healthcare? And I just, I used to say, well, you know, they just use smaller wrenches. Um, but anyway, I, I, uh, spirit guided me. So spirit guided me and I didn't feel like, I didn't really feel like I had changed that much. I just felt like I had kind of put that near death experience behind me and I had taken acceptance and tolerance and I had used that to help me to be a better person because the near-death experience doesn't go away. It really doesn't. I thought I had put it, you know, in a box and wrapped it up with duct tape and shoved it in the back of my mind, but that really doesn't happen because it stays with you and you start living your life. And that life review really hung on me. And so I started judging everything I was doing. Like, how is this going to look in the next life review? You know, that sort of thing. And so it becomes a gauge. It becomes a gauge and a, and a tool on how to live a better life, you know. And so, but I didn't really think that I had changed that much. Um, I was still pretty brash, but I was mellowing, you know. But we all mellow with age. So I didn't, I really, you know, 11 years, I didn't really pay much attention. And then I had a second experience where I was thrust back into the light. And I I had another life review, only this time I got to see those 11 years. In those 11 years, I got to see how much change really, really happened. And this time when I saw the, the life preview, I paid a little more attention. Mm -hmm. And this <laughs> was while I, you were meditating. Yeah, I was meditating. I actually was on a trip with a spiritual group back to Sedona. And... Um, and we we were meditating and and I was called back into the light by the light. The light told me to return to the light. And it was it was quite a <laughs> you would have thought that I drowned because when I got done, I went I, I re-experienced the entire life review. And I re-experienced the, you know, the darkness, meeting the soul family, everything. 
And I've talked to a number of researchers because I've been involved with IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. And I've talked to a few people about this because, uh, you know, like, what was that second experience? What was that? You know, I was just going into meditation and actually I was using the techniques that those grandmothers had taught me to go to my sacred space because that was the only way I knew how to meditate. And so what was that? Why did the, why was I called back into the light? And um, PMH Atwater told me once that, when experiencers repress their experience, like I really tried to put it on a shelf, you know, when they repress it, it's going to come back. Mm -hmm. At some point, it's going to come back and it's going to come bubbling back up. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I think. I think that this second experience was a result of me trying to repress it. And so I had this second spiritual experience, but it was still, it still catapulted me just like the wave did. It catapulted me into the light where I got to do a life review, relive that life review, but also see the 11 years that I had lived. And so that was incredibly eye-opening and it came with additional gifts. Suddenly now I was talking to spirit. Spirit was communicating. It wasn't just downloads of information. I was now conversing with spirit. And I think when I when I say I'm talking to spirit, to me, it, I believe that I'm talking to my soul family because they have different flavors. Um, you could call it voices, but it's it's more than that. It's richer than that. So I call it flavors. They each have different strengths and different things that they're good at, you know. So that was... Um, that was a new benefit from the second experience. Yeah, but and I went to ask you about that because um, I have talked to quite a few near-death experiencers who once they've had one, their body, I mean, their soul pops out of their body more easily because now it remembers where it came from. And I actually have a friend who constantly has out-of-body experiences. She's never died. She just pops yeah. out of her body all the time. And um, and I think that your you, your soul just kind of also gets comfortable in that space and remembers it enough to go back. And probably in your case, as you said, it was repressed, but also as a medium, I'm super interested in the kind of downloads that you were getting and how you knew that it was spirit speaking telepathically to you versus your own voice. Because yeah. people ask me that a lot too. How do you know oh, when it's sure. spirit and how do you know when it's you and what kinds of things are they sharing with you and why? Yeah. Those, I mean, those are all amazing questions. And I, uh, Shannon, I, I'm, I'm in line with you as far as the um, that once you had some sort of spiritual, profound spiritual experience, that that you are more prone prone to be able to um, to exit and 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 experience those altered states. And I I really do think it's because you found your doorway. Yeah. You know, you found your own doorway within yourself and <clears throat> the type of communication. At first, it felt like downloads, like I explained. But when I started having the conversations, I really need clarity as to what was my chattery old mind yeah. and what was spirit communication. And so I started, um, I, I realized, I, spirit, of course, you know, shared with me that um, the doorway to spirit communication is inspiration. That when we do things, that inspire us. We inspiration is spirit communication. Where does the inspiration come from? I mean, it's so simple, right? Yeah. And so 
uh, I started, I thought, wow. So I started using my inspiration. For me, it was silversmithing. I went, I got into silversmithing. I never studied a book. I never picked up anything. I just allowed my inspiration to teach me how to silversmith. And I, and I got into silver casting and everything. And, and it was, and it was, it was an amazing little journey on how to discern what was spirit communication and what was the kind of chattery little mind, because you as a medium, I'm sure you've, you've had this happen where the, All the, time. the ego will suddenly pretend it's spirit. Yes. And it, it you know, it's like, what? <laughs> yeah. You'll have these, you know, these, the mind loves to play with us. So I found that when, when spirit, when I'm receiving spirit inspiration or spirit communication, that I feel it, there's a physical sensation that comes along with it. Now, for me, it feels like my heart is expanding. Mm. And so that's my doorway. Okay. But for others, I know people that are healers, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a healer as well. And, and when I'm doing healing work, I feel it in my palms and my hands. I, I have friends that are mediums. They might feel it in their, in their crown or in I their third eye. Yeah. Up, right up here and down my arm, sometimes yeah. down my leg. Isn't that weird? Hip. I don't know why it's usually on my right side. But when you, when you realize that you're having a moment of inspiration, if you take a breath and just recognize where am I feeling this in my physical body, that can help to identify when it's spirit communication. And the other thing that I've recognized that spirit communication is always matter of fact, non-judgmental, yeah. peaceful, you know, whereas the chattery mind, you know, there's judgment, yeah. there's you know, blah, 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 you know, all that stuff that comes along with it, you know, because the ego likes to feed the chattery mind. Yeah. And I want to hear about your third experience too. Um, and I, but especially um, because I know we're, you know, going kind of long, but I just want to get that out that I want to know about how you discovered that you were an energy healer. Did it have to do with the third experience or did it happen yeah. in between? However yeah, you'd like to share exactly. that. Yeah. Um, so uh, in 2000, I had, you know, I quit my life at sea. I was working in, in dialysis. I actually became the assistant director and I was in my office when suddenly my it felt like my back had exploded. Now I'd been experiencing uh, numbness and 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 stuff in my right arm, not my left arm. So you know, I didn't think it was a heart attack or anything. But I thought I was because of you know, in those days we were doing a lot more keyboarding than we ever used to do. So I thought maybe it was carpal tunnel or something like that. But then all of a sudden I'm in my office and my back exploded. All I could see was a red haze of pain. And I was supposed to have a meeting with the director and vice president. And I just walked into the director's office and I said, I can't make the meeting. I'm, I'm in incredible pain. I'm going up to the ED, the emergency department, and, and, and present myself. And when I presented myself, I explained my symptoms. And they immediately put me on a 12-lead EKG to uh, you know to rule out any kind of heart attack or anything like that. And I... I was pretty sure it wasn't, but I was being tolerant um, and I let them do their thing. But all I really wanted was some pain medicine, you know, and to because um, I just I was in incredible pain. So they ran a bunch of tests. They did some x-rays and I'm in this room. I'm in one of the you know, they put me in one of the emergency rooms. 
And uh, <clears throat> now you got to remember, I'm I'm one of the you know assistant directors in this hospital that I'm presenting myself in, and so I I know a lot of folks in this hospital because I'm also one of the safety officers. And um, <clears throat> the nurse that came in that was caring for me was um, actually um, she was she was my secretary while she was going to nursing school. And then, you know, she became an ER nurse. And so um, she comes in and there's tears in her eyes. And when she came, when she just started to open that door, I recognized the moment from my life review. I recognized that moment. I had seen this. I had lived this. I had pre-lived this before in my life reviews and those two life reviews. And so I knew when she came in, I, and she was tears were in her eyes, blah blah blah. The, and I knew when the resident came in, and he's kind of doing the him and hawing, and he's kind of getting around to telling me what's going on. And I was sitting there just enjoying this because I knew exactly what was going to happen. I knew exactly what he was going to say. Uh, it was also it was like deja vu on steroids. Wow. And so. <clears throat> And I'll probably regret it in the next life review, but I let him suffer through it. <laughs> yep. I'll probably see it in the next life review and I go, boy, that was really dumb. But anyway, <laughs> you could have been you could have been a lot more. But anyway, you know, he he told me that, you know, we found masses on your um your spine and your spine is collapsed because it couldn't it, it can't support because it's eaten away part of your spine, the cancer. And so they kept me in the hospital for a while. They found lesions in my brain, my hip, my kidneys. It was stage four lung and bone cancer. It was traveling very rapidly. And, but I had a clarity because I had seen it in my life review. I also saw I was going to live beyond it. So while everybody, in fact, the doctors told me I had about eight weeks to live and that they were just going to give me morphine and Percocet and let me, you know, let, try to make me as comfortable as possible and let me die. And how did you feel about that? knowing what you know about the the afterlife or what happens when we die. If I could say no to God, I could say no to those doctors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I told them, no, we're going to treat this. I'm going to live. I'm going to survive this. And, and they were, they all thought I was in denial, but I felt I was in total acceptance, but you know, the, the Elizabeth Kubler Ross, you know, the seven yeah. stages of grief and all that, you know, so they all, you know, most healthcare people understand that. And so they thought I was in total denial. And um, and while I was in the oncology ward, I had a couple little miraculous things happen, but that everybody kept coming because again, I knew everybody, I knew a lot of people on a lot of different shifts. And so they had to keep me right next to the nurse's station to try to control the traffic in and out of my room because people were coming in because everybody thought I was dying. Everybody thought I just had limited amount of days left in my life. And so they were coming in and they were actually, it felt like they were, I can never say eulogizing. They were eulogizing me yeah. by saying, you know, Dave, because I had changed a lot in this course, you know, um, up until, you know, because my near-death experience was in 83, this is 2000. And, um, and so I had brought what I had learned in those near-death experiences into my life. And so, you know, they were saying, boy, you know, you did this and it really, I, it's made me think, it's made me think about how, you know, how to do this and how to do that and how to live life. And so people were coming in, sitting on a bedside and, and sharing all this with me. It was almost like another life review. Yeah. But um, the neat thing that happens when someone has stage four 
cancer or any dire prognosis is there's a sudden clarity that comes. At first, there's initial fog of the prognosis, but then there's a clarity that comes that you know what's important in life. And with that, it kind of, because at this time in my life, I was going through a lot of personal things. And so it kind of snapped me back into my spiritual center. There's a few things that I like, I'd like to share real quick. And I have this philosophy that in life, we it's, life is kind of like a pendulum. We swing back and forth. And, you know, sometimes um, we... We swing to our humanness. I, I believe that, you know, there's this duality that we live, our human self and our spiritual nature, okay? And so our pendulum a lot of times swings between our, our human self and our spiritual nature. So it swings back and forth. And a nice gentle swing is, a, is the natural way to live life. Once in a while, you'll have these amazing spiritual experiences that are going to really rock you really high one way. But then there's probably going to be a swing that's almost the momentum is going to carry you into a human episode, you know, which is which will feel like a trial. OK, mm -hmm. it'll feel like a trial. But but the thing is, is try to to maintain your balance so that your swing is, again, in that central part. So. While I was in the hospital, I was going through another very big spiritual step. You know, it's like climbing stairs on our spiritual journey in life. And I had just reached a new plateau. And I had an experience where an angel came to me in the hospital. At the time, I didn't know it was an angel until I talked to the nurses. But uh, one of the nuns, this is a Catholic hospital. And I knew most of the nuns because I had a nun that was in charge of the neph nephrology department. And, but I was in the oncology ward, and so um, this nun came in, came to talk to me, and I started having this inspiration while she was there of how to deal with the pain. And so, and I wrote about it in my book, because I, I, I don't want to spend a lot of your time on it, but I, I wrote about it in the book. But uh, so I relayed this, this inspiration to this angel, and she was, she kind of contributed to it a little bit. And then, um, and then she left, but I felt so amazed, so uplifted, you know, so at peace with, with everything that was going on. And what I'd learned about managing the pain, it had, it, it had worked, it had reduced the pain and everything. So when <clears throat> the nurse came in, I said, oh, you've got to tell me the name of that nun, because, you know, I, I know a lot of the nuns, but I, I, I don't know her. I, I just, you know, and, and she's like, Dave, um, because the nuns were, you know, were, um, were, were given different, uh, you know, the oncology ward would have a nun or maybe, maybe one nun would be in charge of a couple different divisions or something like that. And so I just wanted to know who that nun was. And um, I was going to ask our nun because she kept visiting me too. But, um, but she goes, our, our nun's not on the floor today. She's not here. There are no nuns on the floor today. And so I was like, okay, you know. <laughs> yeah. That nun hasn't been seen since 1935. She passed <laughs> in a terrible accident. That's, you hear that all the time when it yeah. comes to angels. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, how are they going to 
bring the message to us, you know, but in, in a way that makes us comfortable. Right? Yeah. So, and, and at that moment, that was the best, best vehicle to, uh, to deliver and to help me to kind of come out of that drug induced haze that they put you in under morphine and all that sort of thing, to be able to have that clarity of mind, to realize how to dose down on the, on the medication so that I could have that clarity. Cause that was the one thing that bugged me the most immediately after my diagnosis was they wanted me to take all these drugs to control the pain. And it, and I couldn't hear spirit when that was, when I was on a lot of medication. So I didn't like that. Yeah. I had grown accustomed to living with spirit, you know, and talking to spirit on a regular basis. And now not to be able to hear it was right, really disquieting. You know, it really, really bothered me. Did she introduce you to your healing gifts or how did that come about? Well, uh, she kind of laid, she kind of laid some seeds, I would have to say. And, and so she, we, cause part of the, um, part of the thing that we talked about was using visualization, but also later I met, um, I met one of my mentors. Um, well, it was in between actually before the cancer, I'd met this one mentor and she had taught me how to go back into the light because I was very afraid to try to do that while in my physical you know, being, I was afraid to try to cross that threshold because the love on when you're dead and on the other side, you can handle that immense love, right? But when you're physical and you try to cross that threshold, that love overwhelms you and, and I would become this puddle of tears. And so I was very nervous about crossing that threshold and going into the light to commune with spirit. And, um, and this mentor was another very good near-death experiencer, uh, her name was Margaret Keene, but she's since passed. But she taught me how to go across that threshold. And so um, when the nun came, she was kind of like helping me to use visualization. But she also said, don't be afraid, you know, to cross the light. And so when I realized that, I realized that, and that's what I do in my healing, is I, I would, I talk to a client and we talk about where they are in this present moment. So that then when I go into the light, I can connect with their essence and I can, and their essence actually directs the energy work from that point on. Um, and so I'm just, I'm kind of just a facilitator in this state. I, I and, and a lot of times um, they're angels, they're guides, they're deceased loved ones, you know, they might come along and kind of help. So it's kind of a, it's an interesting healing. And you healed yourself. Yeah, within six months. Because I used the guidance, I used the visualizations, I used the guidance that spirit, once I could hear spirit again, I used that. And, um, and so I picked the modalities of traditional and holistic, put them together. And within six months, guidance was telling me that I was doing well. That's kind of the, the, the way it, it came. You're doing very well. Um, you know, that quiet, peaceful yeah. voice. So you're doing very well. And so I, I asked to be tested. And eventually I was able to convince the doctors to test me because they they still believed I was dying at any minute. And I mean, were, stage four means you're out. There's, yeah. there's no coming back from that. Yeah, especially, you know, well, that's, you know, that was 2000. This is, you know, 23. So here you are. Yeah. And, uh, and so, 
they had tested me and they found they did a pet test and and they found that there was no active cancer cells in my body. Now, how, did you lay hands on yourself? Did you pray? Did you? I used. I, yeah. I it was. It was kind of a new way. Of, I was teaching myself how to use energy, but also I was using some. You know, I was using SEACT and I was using um, some some vitamins that help because you don't you can't eat when you're on you know chemo and radiation yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So. So, but within six months, I was cancer free, but I used my guidance and I used my own healing techniques, you know, you don't really need to lay hands. I do most of my work now remotely. Um, I was going to ask you if you do. Yeah, it, 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 I do. I probably not, not since COVID, I, I stopped seeing cl clients when COVID hit and I really haven't opened the office back up because I really you don't need to, I, I, I have just as good results you know, remotely. And, and I find it's uh, very empowering. In fact, I'm less distracted when I don't have to, you know, see your body twitching and stuff when I'm doing the healing work, you know? Yeah. So, I'm actually just in the middle of um, Reiki master training. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I love hearing that uh, because I, I've studied Reiki and I'm level two certified and now I'm doing master training. And um, even though I'm a medium and I constantly have so much evidence that spirit talks to us and they're, they they exist and uh, we are a spirit. I have so much evidence now that I'm 100% certain of it. I've always been a little bit more like, well, I'm going to do Reiki, but I can't prove that it works because I've never experienced it for myself. And yet I believe in it enough to pursue it, but it really helps to hear. And I'm not saying that your modality is Reiki, but just any kind of energy healing it's encouraging it, it, to hear that where, Reiki. We're all tapping into that same yeah. source or that same source energy. You know, I mean, so um, I, I went through Reiki. I became a Reiki master, but I, I like my own technique, um, yeah. you know, because I can go into the light. You know, I don't have to wait for to feel that energy, you know, or to visualize it. I, I can actually go into the light and and connect with your essence, your light right. and um, and allow it to to guide the guide the session. So I don't I don't have a a routine. Every every healing is different. Um I I don't, you know. It's intuitive. Yeah, well, it's it's guided. It's yeah. guided. It's it's more than intuitive. It's it's I'm actually directed as to what to do and and where to focus. So I don't I don't necessarily do the entire body. Um I usually do some kind of balancing at the end just to, you know, just to, you know, bring everything's back into hemostasis. But, but, um, but yeah, most of the time I, I pretty much allow myself to be guided by your light, your essence, you know, because I really feel that when we come back into this life, we bring that fragment of light. And I was a light being on the other side. But when I came back into this body, I only brought a small portion of my light with me. The greater, the greater part of my totality of my being still resides in the oneness with all the other fragments, with my soul family. And so that's my line of communication, I really believe. And, and But as I need more light, I'm able to draw upon my light. And as I don't need so much light, again, the pendulum swinging, you know, um, I don't need as much. So... I really believe that we have within us that divine nature and that divine nature is our spark, is our light. 
and but the totality of our being still resides in the oneness. Right. And I have a question about energy healing as well. What if your soul contract was your soul chose to come into this incarnation and get ALS or cancer and die from that? Can we intervene in that? Or can we just treat symptoms through energy healing if that is your path? How do you think that works? I've had a number of really severe cases um, that have, you know, been clients for some for many years. And um, many times we're just here to provide support. Sometimes we're here to help heal because it's, it's that soul's purpose, that soul's path that they're destined to follow. We're just here to participate and to help. And so sometimes we're here to heal and sometimes we're here to support. Yeah. And it's not for us to determine that. We just allow ourselves to be the facilitator of the energy that they need, you know. That's so well said. Yeah. I don't I don't really feel like I'm there to heal people if it's not what's their highest good, you know, if it's not right. their highest good. Yeah. Yeah. I have a and I have it's a... not for me to judge that either or try to de- determine that. Um, I just do as much as I can with, yeah. with what, you know, spirit allows. The energy knows where to go and what to do. Is Absolutely. What I'm understanding. And yeah. I had a, a friend who had just opened her Reiki business when she was dying. She was 33 and diagnosed with colon cancer. She was gone within the year. And I'm sure someone could say, why couldn't she heal herself? Well, she was meant to pass early. She made an impact on so many people. Um, but it doesn't, it still doesn't hurt to have Reiki for emotional healing, for uh, symptom relief, for just loving somebody. I think sometimes mm-hmm. it's just transmitting that love to somebody yeah. helps them cope with the difficulties of having a, a terminal illness or, or, or loss or whatever it is they're going through. Or maybe just, you know, like me, I have chronic migraines. Maybe it's just to help with prevention, I mean, uh, prevention or um, symptom relief. Yeah, yeah. And migraines are completely debilitating at times, yeah. you know, um, yep. and, and finding a path past it is sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. And sometimes yeah. maybe, you know, you need that, you know, that Reiki share or, yeah. or something to kind of help, you know, because that's, and, and that's another thing is I learned along the way is, is to, don't be afraid to ask for help, even though, you know, you've had these amazing experiences, you've, you've lived in spiritual community, you, you know, I don't care if you're a monk, um, and, and you live a spiritual life, there are times in life we need to ask for help, we need, we, we're all interconnected and interdependent upon each other, so um, asking for help is allowing other people to be of service as well, you know, and that was a big lesson I learned during my cancer journey as well, that, you know, I thought I had, you know, cured myself as much as I possibly could. And, but I still had a lot of symptoms and a lot of different things that were going on. And I just had this one episode where a friend of mine came up because I was having severe nervous leg syndrome and I never had anything like that before the cancer or but because of the spine, I didn't, I didn't know what the cause was, but suddenly I had, I couldn't sleep, you know, because my legs would just be 
thrashing about. And um, and I, I met a, a guy at one of the shows and and he was saying, Oh yeah, Reverend uh, Jane over there, she's uh she she I had I had that and I went there and she cured it. I was, really? Jane, sign me up. I need a, yeah. I need a session, you know? And um and and it was a, it was the strangest experience. I sat down and she had a different different way of healing. She did this uh, kinesiology kind of thing. And, and, um, and I forget the name of the technique, but she has a, I wrote it up in the book. It's in my Voyage of Purpose book. But so Jane sat me down and, she, and I hadn't, and my feet are, were completely numb and my hands are numb since my spine collapsed. And, and so I'm sitting in the chair and she starts doing this healing. And suddenly I felt this burning going down from my crown, all the way down my spine, all the way to my root and down my legs. And suddenly when it got down to my feet, I could feel my socks for the first time in a long time. And I was like, and, and so I was trying to my focus when I sat there was uh, I'm I'm releasing control. I'm just let Jane do whatever she needs to do. I'm just releasing control. And so when she did that, I was I was ready to jump out of the chair and just hug her and say, "Oh my God, Jane healed me!" You know. But and and so that night I decided not to take any of the medications that doctors had given me for nervous leg, and I just you know I thought let's let's see what happens. And I have. I threw the jars away. I've never had an episode since. My mom has really bad restless leg syndrome. And um, yeah, it has to take clonopin and you just inspired me. I was like, maybe I should try some Reiki on her. Yeah, um, definitely. And just see what, it, because I would like to see for myself. I'd like to have someone say, oh my gosh, it's gone. Like yeah. it's, you know, and I've done, um, I've had some even energy healing. Can, even if you can just alleviate it. Yeah, the symptoms a, a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. You know? I just want to see the results for myself, whereas in mediumship, I can immediately get feedback that, mm -hmm. yes, my dad's name was Don. Yes, he uh, did play baseball. And yes, he, you know, played cards or something. And it's like, okay, that's that's right upfront validation. But Reiki may take some more time. But I know I was suffering for three years with uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which mm -hmm. took away my ability to perform voiceover um, because it caused vocal cord dysfunction from the acid reflux. And yeah. I tried, I mean, I changed my diet for three years and I ate zero sugar, nothing. And then I had a few energy healing sessions. I was dubious from Trisha Barker and also Tyler Deal. And they're my friends. So we did, a, yeah. you know, they, they're kind enough to share that with me. And I mean, within a month it was gone. And I, was it going to be gone anyway? I don't know. But I just know that I tried I spent all my money on all the healing modalities and nothing worked. And then suddenly they both had sessions with both of them and it didn't happen immediately, but within like a month or two, I'm like, I, I just ate a blueberry and I had no <laughs> methane fumes coming up and maybe I can eat another blueberry. Now I can eat normally yeah. again. And it's like, yeah. okay, I still don't eat sugar, but I'm like, yeah. I'm not going to tempt fate, but it, yeah. I think that there is some validity and I'm so excited um, about the prospect of being able to to help people in some way uh so that's exciting i would love to hear what's i know that you're retired and you're enjoying your life um but what's up next for david bennett so you're doing energy healing uh i know you're yeah, speaking I'm are you the still busiest yeah. retired guy you ever want to meet um, yeah and and i i actually i enjoy doing my woodworking i i spend 
as much time as I possibly can carve out. Um, Pardon the I pun. My, hmm? Pardon the pun. <laughs> <laughs> Again. Um, but yeah, so I, I do my, I do my healing work. Um, I, my wife has a, a business with crystals. And so I help out there quite a bit. And, um, and I'm just happy going into the shop and making, um, I, I like to make these altars, uh, sacred space. That's beautiful. And so that's the kind of woodworking I do. I try to create. Uh, You've got you know, one behind you, don't you? Yeah, that's one With of mine. With crystals around, it's beautiful. Yeah, that's one of mine. That's a, that's, I don't make the big ones like that as much anymore because, uh, um, but that's, that's, that actually was one of my first altars right there. Yeah. That is, it is beautiful for those who are listening to the audio only version. <laughs> it's this beautiful little tiny little cabinet with a Buddha in the middle of it. I think that's what that is. Mm -hmm. And then it has crystals around it and it has, is that the Dalai Lama? I can't see from far yes, away. Yes. The Dalai he, Lama perched on top. Yeah. That, that's a picture of the, the day we were with him. Uh, we spent three days with him learning the ways of the Bodhisattva. We took our Bodhisattva's vows with his holiness. Yeah. That's so, so beautiful. That's, that's my daily reminder of my Bodhisattva vows. I love that. That's so nice. Just be careful. My my grandfather cut his little pinky off doing woodworking. Um, <laughs> but yes, just cautionary it takes, tale. It takes focus, mindfulness. Yes. And that's where, you know, and, and that's where spiritual practice can really come in handy too, you know, because you bring that mindfulness into everything. But yes. I don't go out into the shop unless I'm really in that frame of mind. Because I'm yeah. trying to create sacred space for people. So I don't want to go, I don't, I'm not going to go out there when I'm frustrated and upset. Yeah. You know, I go out there when I'm at peace because it's inspirational work for me. It's, it kind of satisfies, you know, like working with the crystals and selling and doing that marketing and things like that. That's all the analytical side. So you need something to balance out, balance that out in life, you know, so you need something that's creative, you know, so don't yes. just. Don't just focus on the analytical or don't just focus on the creative. You need a little bit of both. A really... little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. David, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your energy and for joining me, even though, as I said, you've told your story so many times on so many shows and it means the world to have you join me on mine. This was one of my favorite interviews ever and uh, just appreciate your just the way that the person that you are and uh, for being so selfless in your, in your wanting to share your story for, I assume the reasons that I like to do this podcast is to give people hope and inspiration because our world can be very ugly sometimes and it, things can feel very discouraging, but it's so validating to know that uh, as the title of my podcast, magic is real, that there is magic still. There's we're. I just got chills. Um, there is magic. We are spirit. This is all happening. All the all the tough things. It's it's all. It'll make sense on the other side. It'll make sense. Our souls understand it, even though it can be very difficult to understand it in human form. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast. This has been a real fun time, actually, and quite an honor. Thank you. Thank you.